Everybody finger wag. Wag it. Wag it. Wag it. Wag it. Yeah. I was fighting for rights before electric lights. Do I exaggerate a bit? Well, I might. I'ma race the people like a Delta flight. You gon' really feel the burn. I can melt your ice. It doesn't matter what your sex is. It doesn't matter your complexion. Do it. Congress is in session. And they didn't earn the pension. Bernie Sanders. Look, everybody needs to get out and vote. Doesn't matter, Democrat, Republican, Independent. This is our right as a people. We can't sit by and let them decide. So you better vote. Just prisons they live in for slipping through cracks in the system. Just riches for those who invest in convictions. Now stop. Wag it. Wag it, wag it, wag it, wag it, just do it, put, put your hands in the air like you really care. And that was Do the Bernie Sanders by Two Infamous, that's the number two, I-N-F-A-M-O-U-Z, and you can find that on YouTube. At the end of the program, we'll hear Vote Bernie, Be Happy by Tony valley greetings and welcome back to bernie 2016 this is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on bernie sanders candidacy for president of the united states this podcast is completely independent of any candidate party or pack if you want to reach out to me you can reach me at bernie us 2016 at gmail.com or you can follow me on twitter at bernie us 2016. If you want to find back episodes and a few other links, you can take a look at the website at bernie-2016.com. So where to start? Uh, Lately, I've been recording my episodes on the eve of the primary. Well, I held off an extra two days this week, and I am recording the day after the Indiana primary. And not to anyone's surprise, like likely at this point, uh, Bernie Sanders did win in Indiana. This first piece is from the burnreport.com by G.A. Casebeer. 
Bernie Sanders held a press conference a few days ago and urged people not to give up. It made it clear that his campaign is going all the way until the convention in July, no matter what happens between now and then. Most of us weren't going to give up anyway, but this win in Indiana puts the momentum back in Bernie's camp and should help some people keep the faith. Also, this victory once again proves the pundits wrong. Along with most pollsters, including media darling Nate Silver of 538 fame, who as of at least 1.40 p.m. on Election Day gave Clinton a 91% chance of winning. Although we don't have the final margin of victory yet, and we're pretty close now. Last time I looked, there weren't 100% of the votes counted, uh, but Bernie Sanders won uh, by about five, a little more than five percentage points. Um and the fact that Silver only gave Sanders a 9% chance of winning isn't terribly surprising. Though, as his predictions rely heavily on polling, and Sanders has outperformed the polls time and time again, mostly because of the way the data is collected, someday people will realize that landline phones are no longer reliable when looking at the bigger picture. So what does this win mean for Sanders? In terms of delegates, he'll gain a few. But what really matters is that it might slow down the corporate media a little bit. Maybe it won't. Maybe they will realize that this isn't over with and they will work harder to discredit him. But one thing it does do is prove that independents matter and why we need open primaries. This win will help energize his support base and it also puts the momentum back on his side. With several primaries still to go, he has a great chance to roll into Philadelphia on a winning streak, while Clinton will be limping in. So Bernie pulled out a big win in Indiana. Uh, all the polls had him down. There wasn't a single poll that was tracked in the um, the the polling on Huffington Post or on Real Clear Politics that aggregate. All recent polls. There wasn't a single one that had Bernie Sanders leading. Uh, there were s about half of those last like eight or nine polls had Bernie in single digit deficit to Hillary Clinton. And the other half had him around the 10 or 12% deficit to Hillary Clinton. The averages were around uh, nine points or 10 points down when you average those polls together. And Bernie Sanders outperformed it all. He, you know, that swing from a from an average poll of of like nine, ten, nine or ten points down to a win of greater than five percent. It's a fifteen percentage point swing from the polling results to the actual results. So kudos to everybody in Indiana, everybody who reached out to anybody in Indiana, everybody who was not willing to give up after Sanders' performance uh, in the previous round of primaries where he won one of five primaries. The one, Rhode Island, he won by a, a large margin, like 10 points or better. The only one that had open primaries where independents could join the Democratic Party and vote for the Democratic candidate. Uh, one more piece on Indiana. Before we move into some other topics, and this piece is from NBCNews.com. 
Bernie Sanders won Indiana Tuesday with stronger support among groups that have helped Hillary Clinton win in other Democratic primaries, the NBC News exit poll indicates. White women represented 42% of Indiana Democrats, up from an average of 34% in prior primaries. So big, big turnout among white women in Indiana. 57% of white women voted for Bernie Sanders, a 13-point gain from previous primaries. Changes in the age of Tuesday's electorate also influenced the outcome. There were fewer senior voters in the Indiana electorate. They represented 16% of voters. Sanders picked up 33% of the senior vote versus an average of 26% in other states. So even though the senior voters are not Sanders' strong suit, he did manage to come out better among that group in Indiana than he has in the past. More voters in Indiana identified themselves as liberals, and the majority voted for Sanders on Tuesday. Clinton has been winning an average of 54% of liberals in prior primaries. Among liberals in Indiana, 56% voted for Sanders. Sanders also had significant support from 72% of independents, which made up 22% of the electorate. This is why Bernie Sanders won in Indiana. 22% of the voters were independent, and among those voters, 72% of those voted for Bernie Sanders. He is bringing a huge amount of people who have not participated on a regular basis in the Democratic Party in the past into the Democratic Party. He also had 65% of white non-college Democrats who represented a third of the electorate. Among the 3 in 10 voters who considered honesty the most important quality when deciding which candidate to support, 80% backed Sanders. He also captured 6 in 10 votes from Democrats who are anti-Wall Street, which were 64% of the electorate, and two-thirds from those who think income inequality is a top problem facing the country. And that was chosen as a top problem by 24% of the electorate. So a little bit of the exit polling from Indiana and the, the where Bernie Sanders found his strength and the groups that held, uh, that, that helped Bernie Sanders win the primary in Indiana. Prior to Indiana, there were, a whole lot of uh, media outlets and pundits and others, other talking heads out there that were calling for Bernie Sanders to drop out of the race and throw his support behind Hillary Clinton. But uh, there's no need. He's going to fight for every vote. He's going to fight for every delegate. He's going to go into the convention strong. And next up is a story from MondoWeiss.net. It's M-O-N-D-O-W-E-I-S-S. This is by Scott Roth and Phil Weiss. And it is Norman Finkelstein on Sanders, the first intifada, BDS, and 10 years of unemployment. I'm only going to cover the first part here. So this was an interview, so it was you'll you'll hear like a, a Q and A kind of format here, and this was an interview of Norman 
Finkelstein, who is a scholar of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Question. You've been canvassing for Bernie Sanders. Tell us why you're so excited. I've witnessed three great social movements in my lifetime. The civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and this is the third. Bernie's campaign took the Occupy movement, which was localized, and he elevated it to the national level. I don't know what will come next. I doubt anyone knows, but it's exhilarating to be part of it. If you asked me one year ago whether young people would come out in these numbers, I would have laughed. My impression was that they were hooked on internet chatter and antidepressants. But the young folks in the campaign are so serious, so intelligent. They remind me of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee folks from the early 1960s. I went on a bus ride to Massachusetts to campaign for Bernie. I was one of five in the Alte Cocker Brigade. The rest were young people. It struck me that on the way home, there were no drugs, no one smoking marijuana, no alcohol. We got home at midnight or 1 a.m. It was kind of moral austerity. Like, this is serious stuff. We're not going to diminish it. I have to say, it made me feel proud for once to be an American. On the other hand, these young people have good reason to be serious. They're struggling for their future. If nothing comes of this, it's really a black hole for them. A futureless future. They're attending colleges with astronomical tuitions, coming out strapped with astronomical debt. Then they have to pay astronomical interest rates, and the worst is, there are no jobs out there. So they have real, as we used to say, material interest in the Bernie Sanders campaign. Question. If Bernie loses, something could still come of this? Hopefully, the young folks will figure out the next step. It's telling how easily and intelligently they made the transition from the Occupy movement. Occupy had a lot of cultist elements. That open mic thing, I felt as if I was at a Mooney wedding. In the consensus politics, it just didn't work. When Bernie keeps being asked reasonably, how do you expect to push a radical program through Congress, he keeps saying the same thing. I can't do anything on my own. There's got to be millions of people in the streets. He never says organize within the Democratic Party. He just says organize, organize, organize. How can anyone calling themselves radical disagree with this message? This is the opportunity of a lifetime. Bernie has a national platform day in and day out. He's hammering away at Wall Street. He's naming Goldman Sachs. He's indicting the Walton family. One family for hoarding more wealth than 40% of our society. He says it over and over again, to the point that even his supporters are complaining. But Bernie grasps that he must keep repeating the message if it's going to get traction. His devout supporters might have heard his stump speech a thousand times already, but most people hear it just once. For them, it's not tedious. It's a revelation. Still, you'd never know what he's saying from the mainstream media. You wouldn't know that he's saying that one-tenth of one percent owns more wealth than 90%. That's a simple statement. He keeps repeating it, but the New York Times never reports it. However, it also never disputes it. It's just whited out. Instead, when Sanders started campaigning in New York, the Times ran a puff piece on Goldman Sachs saying how cool and hip the place was because its chief information officer was a gay Latino. 
For all anyone knows, so was Dracula, but he's still a vampire. Hillary keeps saying, quote, we have to build on Obama. But what did Obama actually do that we are supposed to build on? Did he reduce college tuition or student debt? Did he create real 9 to 5, 40-hour-per-week jobs at a decent wage? Did he reduce income inequality? If his term of office was such a resounding success, which power-hungry grovelers like Paul Krugman now proclaim, can you tell me why so many people are rallying behind Trump and Sanders? Have you ever in your lifetime seen such mass disaffection from the political establishment and the system it represents. Do you see question? Do you see real economic reform flowing from the campaign? Not in the short term. The 1% is tenacious. A lot is at stake for them. Former NYC mayor and billionaire Michael Bloomberg might be reduced to owning only 10 homes. Even if Bernie did win the nomination, the political establishment and the billionaires who control it will try to destroy him. The deep state as Egyptians call it, will do everything they can to wreck him, so as to teach the people a lesson. Don't mess with the system. The Republican establishment would prefer Hillary to win if Trump is nominated, and the Democratic establishment would prefer Trump to win if Sanders is nominated. The apparatchiks in both parties are trembling because power is slipping from them. Quote, how did this happen? To them, the party has been hijacked. Their vehicle to power has been hijacked. The serfs are stealing their fiefdom from under their feet. The whole top is united because the whole bottom is shaking in the rafters. Each party would rather lose one election than lose control of their respective apparatus. And this piece goes on with more on Bernie Sanders and more on a number of other issues as well. It's a, a really good interview, so I encourage you to check it out. It is called Norman Finkelstein on Sanders, the First Intifada, BDS, and 10 Years of Unemployment. And it is by Scott Roth and Phil Weiss. And it is on... What site is it on? It's on Mondo Weiss, M-O-N-D-O-W-E-I-S-S. So check that out. It does go on. I didn't quite get to it, but he does go on and speak uh, briefly about something that Noam Chomsky had, had to say. And this next piece also covers that as well. This is from readersupportednews.org. Noam Chomsky, young Bernie Sanders supporters are a mobilized force that could change the country. During an event Tuesday night, Noam Chomsky was asked about Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders and said he considered him more of a New Deal Democrat than a radical extremist, as some have portrayed him. Chomsky said Sanders' positions on taxes and health care are supported by a majority of the American public and have been for a long time. He added that Sanders has mobilized a large number of young people who are saying, look, we're not going to consent anymore. If that turns into a continuing organized, mobilized force that could change the country, maybe not for this election, but in the longer term. Instead of me telling you more about what Chomsky had to say, here is uh, Chomsky speaking on 
Bernie Sanders and the movement around him. Well, Bernie Sanders is an extremely interesting phenomenon. He's a decent, honest person. That's pretty unusual in the political system. Uh, maybe there are two of them in the world. You know? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, but uh, he's... Uh, He's considered uh, a radical and extremist, which is a pretty interesting characterization uh, because he's basically a mainstream New Deal Democrat. His positions uh, would not have surprised President Eisenhower, who said, in fact, that uh, anyone who does not accept New Deal programs doesn't belong in the American political system. Uh, that's now considered very radical. Uh, the other interesting aspect of Sanders' positions is that they're quite strongly supported by the general public and have been for a long time. That's true on taxes, it's true on health care, uh, so take say health care. Uh, his, his proposal for a national health care system, meaning the kind of system that just about every other developed country has, uh, at uh, half the per capita cost of the United States and uh, comparable or better outcomes. Uh, that's considered very radical. But it's been the position of the majority of the American population for a long time. So if you go back, say, to the Reagan, right now, for example, uh, latest polls, about 60% of the population favor it. Uh, when Obama put through the Affordable Care Act, there was, you recall, a public option, but that was dropped. It was dropped even though it was supported by about almost two-thirds of the population. They go back earlier, say, to the Reagan years, uh, about 70% of the population thought that national health care should be in the Constitution because it's such an obvious right. And in fact, about 40% of the population thought it was in the Constitution. <laughs> Again, because it's such an obvious right. And, and the same is true on tax policy and others. So we have this phenomenon where someone is taking positions that would have been considered pretty mainstream uh, during the Eisenhower years that are supported by uh, a large part, often a considerable majority of the population, but he's dismissed as radical and extremist. That's an indication of how the spectrum has shifted to the right during the neoliberal period. Uh, so far to the right that the contemporary Democrats are pretty much what used to be called moderate Republicans. And the Republicans are just off the spectrum. They're not a legitimate parliamentary party anymore. And Sanders has uh, uh, the, the significant part of uh, He has pressed the mainstream Democrats a little bit towards the progressive side. You see that in Clinton's statements. But he has mobilized a large number of young people, these young people who are saying, look, we're not going to consent anymore. And if that turns into a, a, a continuing organized, mobilized, mobilized force, that could change the country. Maybe not for this election, but in the longer term. That was Noam Chomsky, the world-renowned political dissident, linguist, author, and professor emeritus at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he's taught for more than half a century. He 
And that was Noam Chomsky speaking on Bernie Sanders and the political movement that uh, he has in part inspired. And from the hill at the hill.com by Jonathan Easley. Poll, Democrats want Sanders to stay in through the convention. A majority of Democrats say presidential candidate Bernie Sanders should stay in the race through the party's national convention in Philadelphia in July, a new poll finds. 57% of Democrats said that Sanders should stay in the race until the summer nominating event, according to an NBC News SurveyMonkey poll released on Tuesday. Only 25% said that he should drop out after the last votes are cast on June 14 in the final Democratic primary in Washington, D.C. 16% said Sanders should drop out now. Democratic frontrunner Hillary Clinton leads Sanders by about 300 delegates, with just over 1,000 still up for grabs. Because Democrats award their delegates proportionately, Sanders would have to defeat Clinton by huge margins in the remaining states to catch her. Even if he does, which is unlikely, Clinton has a huge lead among superdelegates who have pledged to support her at the convention. Those votes are likely to put her over the top for the nomination. Clinton's allies are, for the most part, not calling for Sanders to drop out now. They believe he's earned the right to campaign until the final votes are cast, but are hopeful he'll then rally his supporters behind Clinton at the convention. Democrats are closely watching the tone Sanders takes with Clinton, hoping he'll rein in his attacks so as not to damage her for the general election. And that's a really, really common concern and common voiced opinion in the media. Bernie Sanders isn't damaging Hillary Clinton. In my opinion, Hillary Clinton has already damaged herself. Bernie Sanders is, of course, pointing out some of those cracks in the facade and uh, many in the establishment political system and establishment media really don't like Bernie campaigning and trying to win the nomination for himself. And, but the people, or the Democrats in this case, in this poll, do want Bernie Sanders to stay in the race to the convention, which he intends to do. And this next piece is actually audio from Bernie Sanders' remarks at the National Press Club on May the 1st. So here is what Bernie had to say about the state of his campaign and his path forward. People have supported us in every way. Uh, when we started this campaign, as most of you know, we were considered to be a fringe uh, candidacy. Uh, we started uh, with no campaign organization. Uh, we started with no money. Uh, we started with very little name recognition outside of my own state of Vermont. Uh, in national polls, uh, we were trailing Secretary Clinton by at least 60 points, and in some cases, a little bit more. Uh, in this campaign, we have taken on the entire Democratic establishment in state after state. We have taken on the senators, the members of the Congress, 
the governors, the mayors. We have taken them all on. And in the Clinton organization, obviously, we are taking on the most powerful political, political organization in this country, an organization that has won two presidential elections with Bill Clinton and ran a very strong campaign with Hillary Clinton in 2008. That was what we were up against. That was then. Today is today. As of today, we have now won 17 primaries and caucuses in every part of the country. And by the way, we hope to make uh, Indiana uh, our, our 18th victory on Tuesday. Uh, and we have received some 9 million votes. In recent national polls, we're not behind Secretary Clinton by 60 points anymore. In the last few weeks, actually, there have been a couple of polls that have us uh, in the lead. Other polls have us single digits uh, behind. In terms of fundraising, we have received more individual campaign contributions, 7.4 million, than any candidate in presidential history at this point in a campaign. We do not have a super PAC. We do not get our money from Wall Street or the drug companies or powerful corporations. Our money is coming from the middle class and working class of this country, averaging $27 uh, a campaign contribution. Uh, and I'm very proud of the fact that we have just raised in the last month, we had a phenomenally good month, uh, we've raised over $25 million, despite the fact that 80% of the primary and caucuses are behind us. What the political revolution has shown is that we can run a strong winning campaign without a super PAC and without being dependent on big money interests. As of today, and I don't know if anyone else has done it, maybe they have, maybe they haven't, I don't know that, but we have brought out over 1.1 million people to our rallies from Maine to California and that number will go up very significantly because we intend to have a number of major rallies in the state of California. And very importantly, we have won in state after state a strong majority of the votes of younger people, voters under 45 years of age. In other words, the ideas that we are fighting for are the future of the Democratic Party and, in fact, the future of this country. And again, I'm not just talking about people 23 years of age and younger, where we're doing phenomenally well and very proud of that. We're talking about people 45 years of age or younger. And the reason for that, I believe, is that the issues that we are talking about are the issues that are on the minds of the American people. People know, whether you're conservative or progressive, that a corrupt campaign finance system with super PACs is undermining American democracy. They understand there is something fundamentally wrong where the average American is working longer hours for lower wages and almost all new income and wealth is going to the top 1%. They understand that we have a broken criminal justice system with more people in jail than any other country on Earth. They understand that we have got to deal with the planetary crisis of climate change and, among other things, impose a tax on carbon. They understand that at a time we have a major crisis, 
growing crisis with regard to clean water. We need to end fracking. They understand that in a competitive global economy, we need to make public colleges and universities tuition-free. And they understand that when you have a grotesque level of income and wealth inequality, yes, large profitable corporations and the top 1% are going to have to pay more in taxes. Let me now just say a few words about delegate math and our path toward victory. As all of you know, there are a total of 4,766 Democratic delegates. 4,047 of them are pledged, i.e., they come out as a result of the contest in the various states. 719 are superdelegates, superdelegates. A candidate, Democratic candidate, needs 2,383 votes in order to win the Democratic nomination. Let me be very clear. It is virtually impossible for Secretary Clinton to reach the majority of convention delegates by June 14th. That is the last day uh, that a primary will be held with pledged delegates alone. In other words, once more, it is virtually impossible for Secretary Clinton to reach the majority of convention delegates by June 14th with pledged delegates alone. She will need superdelegates to take her over the top at the convention in Philadelphia. In other words, the convention will be a contested contest. Currently, Secretary Clinton has 1,645 pledged delegates, 55% of the total. We have 1,318 pledged delegates, 45% of the total. There are 10 states remaining where we're going to be vigorously competing, plus the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, and Guam. We believe that we are in a very strong position to win many of these remaining contests, and we have an excellent chance to win in California, the state with far and away the most delegates. For us to win the majority of pledged delegates, we need to win 710 out of the remaining 1,083. That is 65 percent of the remaining pledged delegates. That is admittedly, and I do not deny it for a second, a tough road to climb, but it is not an impossible road to climb. And we intend to fight for every vote in front of us and for every delegate remaining. In terms of superdelegates, I would like to just say the following. Obviously, we are taking on virtually the entire Democratic establishment. And it is amazing to me, and I just have to thank our volunteers, that we go into state after state. You got the senators, you got the governor, and you got the mayors. All of them know how to get out the vote. And yet in 17 primaries and caucuses, despite all of that political establishment support, we have won. Now, of the uh, 719 superdelegates, many of those delegates committed themselves to Secretary Clinton even before we got into this campaign. In other words, way back then, she was the anointed candidate. And they said, we're with Hillary Clinton. While she has 
520 superdelegates, we have all of 39 superdelegates. In other words, while we have won 45% of the pledge delegates in real campaigns where the people have spoken, we've won 45%, we have won only 7% of the superdelegates. Two points regarding that. First, those superdelegates in states where either candidate, Secretary Clinton or myself, has won a landslide victory, those superdelegates ought to seriously reflect on whether they should cast their superdelegate vote in line with the wishes of the people of their states. And let me just give you an example of what I mean by that. In the state of Washington, we won that caucus with almost 73% of this vote, of the vote there. 73% of the vote. In anybody's definition, that is a massive landslide. But at this point, Secretary Clinton has 10 superdelegates from the state of Washington. We have zero. I would ask the superdelegates from the state of Washington to respect the wishes of the people in their state and the votes they have cast. In Minnesota, we won the caucus there with 61% of the vote. Hillary Clinton has 11 superdelegates. We have three. In Colorado, we won that state with 59% of the vote. Pretty strong margin. Secretary Clinton has 10 superdelegates. We have zero. In New Hampshire, we won that state with more than 60% of the vote. Secretary Clinton has six superdelegates. We have zero. And that pattern continues in other states where we have won landslide victories. I would hope very much that the superdelegates from those states where we have won with big margins, or in fact where Secretary Clinton has won with big margins, to respect the wishes of the people of those states and vote in line with how the people of that state voted. Secondly, and extremely importantly, Secretary Clinton and I obviously have many differences of opinion on some of the most important issues facing our country. We disagree on trade policy, on breaking up Wall Street banks. We disagree on the minimum wage. I want to raise it to $15 an hour. She wants to raise it to $12 an hour. We disagree on whether or not we should impose a tax on carbon to deal with the crisis of climate change. I believe we should. We disagree about the extent to which the wealthy and profitable multinational corporations should be asked to pay their fair share of taxes. We disagree on fracking. I believe we have got to end fracking in this country. We disagree on a number of other issues. But where Secretary Clinton and I strongly agree, and where every delegate to the Democratic Convention strongly agrees, is that it would be a disaster for this country if Donald Trump or some other right-wing Republican were to become President of the United States. Therefore, in my view, it is incumbent upon every superdelegate 
to take a hard and objective look at which candidate stands the better chance of defeating Donald Trump and other Republican candidates. And in that regard, I think the evidence is extremely clear that I would be the stronger candidate to defeat Trump or any other Republican. And this is not just on the subjective opinion of Bernie Sanders. I'm not here to just to tell you this is what I think, this is what I believe. I think this is really what the objective evidence tells us. And this is based on virtually every national and state poll done in the last several months. Now, I know that polls go up and down. But when you have poll after poll after poll nationally saying that Sanders can defeat Trump by a, in some cases, much greater margin than Clinton can, I think it is worth paying attention to that. In a morning consult survey, we beat Trump by 16 points. She beats him by seven. These are very recent polls. In an IBD poll, we beat Trump by 12. She beats him by seven. The USA Today poll, we beat Trump by 15. She beats him by 11. A George Washington University poll, we beat him by 10. She beat him by three. Fox News has us beating Trump by 14. She beats him by seven. But it is not just national polls. Everybody knows that at a general election in the United States, you win the electoral vote taking place in 50 states in this country. And if you look at virtually every battleground state in Arizona, in Michigan, in Missouri, in New Hampshire, in North Carolina, and in many other states which are up for grabs, maybe won by the Democratic candidate, maybe won by the Republican candidate, in every one of those states, we defeat Trump by larger margins than she does. Further, equally important, what recent elections tell us is that when the voter turnout is high, when people come out in large numbers, Democrats and progressives win. People are excited. They come out. Young people come out. Working class people come out. People don't always vote come out. Democrats win. On the other hand, Republicans win elections when the voter turnout is low, and that is exactly what we saw in the last national election in 2014 when 63 percent of the American people didn't vote. There is little doubt in my mind that the energy and the excitement in this campaign is with the work we have done. And I believe that energy and that excitement among working class people, among middle class people, among young people, will translate to a very large voter turnout in November, which not only will mean victory for the White House, it will mean victory for Senate races, U.S. House races, and governor's races throughout this uh, country. This is an issue uh, that I hope the superdelegates will pay keen attention to. I understand that some of them prefer Secretary Clinton, fair enough. Some people prefer me, fair enough. But at the end of the day, what every person in Philadelphia who goes to that convention understands, that we must have the strongest candidate to defeat Trump or another Republican. And I think the objective evidence is that I am that candidate. Thanks very much. Uh, let me start. We'll take a few questions. Uh, we're off to Indiana uh, in a few minutes. But let me start with Lisa uh, Lara from uh, 
Uh, AP, we see you here. President Obama convinced several dozen to switch their position, um, and never before, of course, have superdelegates gone against the person, flipped to go against the person who led in pledge delegates. So how realistic is this well, pathway? Lisa, as I've said, and I, let me say it again, we have an uphill climb. Uh, no question about it. It is not going to be easy, and nothing I'm telling you today suggests this is going to be an easy fight. But I think you're going to have, again, we don't know what's going to happen in Indiana on Tuesday, we don't know what's going to happen in the nine other states. We don't know what's going to happen in the four other elections. But let me put this into your mind. What happens if we do really, really well in the remaining 10 states? And what happens if the polls continue to show that Bernie Sanders is the strongest candidate against Donald Trump? Do I believe that there will be some superdelegates? How many? Nobody can tell you. That there will be some delegates who say, you know, I came on the can't. Clinton campaign, even before Sanders got in, you know, but I want to rethink this because what is most important is beating Donald Trump. If, and that's an if, I admit, but if that scenario plays out, yeah, I do think you're going to have a lot of superdelegates who say, you know, what's most important? It is most important that we defeat uh, Donald Trump uh, in November. Uh, John Wagner here. John, did you have a question? that Hillary Clinton has claimed and another 23 that are uh, uncommitted. Are those kind of numbers enough even no, they're not, but, to be? No, they're not, John. But it, it's just part of the process. So in other words, those are delegates. There are two. When you're dealing with two superdelegates, I think there are two points. Lisa asked one question, you're asking the other. If I win a state with 70% of the votes, you know what? I think I'm entitled to those superdelegates. I think the superdelegates should reflect what the people in the state want. And that's true for Hillary Clinton as well. I can't tell you one thing for me and another thing for Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton wins Mississippi by whatever she wanted by some huge number. Yeah, superdelegates there should vote for her. That's one issue. But the issue that I just talked to Lisa about is a different issue. And that is that while I think we can, are entitled to pick up many, many dozens of superdelegates, I think the real struggle will be in the hearts and the minds of superdelegates who came on board the Clinton campaign a long, long time ago. And they are going to have to go into their hearts, and they are going to have to ask themselves, do they want the second strongest candidate to run against Trump, or do they want the strongest candidate? And I would hope, I'm not making any predictions, nothing guaranteed here, but I think some of those uh, superdelegates who announced for Clinton even before I got into the race will say, you know what? Bernie has the better chance of defeating Trump, and that is what is most important. Uh, Jeff Selling here. Jeff, did you have a question? Yeah, Senator, thank you. Um, Donald Trump said this morning on Fox News Sunday that um, he is uh, intrigued by some of your message that you have used to uh, take on um, Secretary Clinton, and he plans to use that message as sound bites and as, as arguments. Going forward, as you continue through um, the rest of this. Do you plan to change any Look, of your tone? And do you believe that you are contributing to uh, his campaign by helping him advance well, this I argument against take, Secretary Clinton? I want to congratulate Donald Trump, who has managed to manipulate the media in an unprecedented way. Every word he says is three hours on CNN or some other station. No, the Republican Party and Trump 
have the resources to do all the opposition research they want on Secretary Clinton. They don't need Bernie Sanders' uh, critiques of the Secretary. And as I have said before, uh, when you look at a Donald Trump who wants to give hundreds of billions of dollars in tax breaks to the top two-tenths of one percent, a man who, despite all of the scientific evidence, thinks that climate change is a hoax, a man who thinks we should not raise the starvation wage, minimum wage of $7.25 an hour, I think in the general election, no matter who runs against them, this guy will not be a strong candidate. You now, I know, and you should know, what Trump is trying to do. He's trying he's to appeal. your voice, Senator. He's saying it's your voice. Uh, you, as her rival, is helping him make that argument. It's not the research. It's the fact that you are saying no, that about her. I think that's nonsense, and I'm glad to see that he, you know, he manages to get through to some media making that point. What is a campaign about? A campaign is supposed to be about not just political gossip, it's actually supposed to be about differentiating the points of view that candidates have. Secretary Clinton and I have different points of view on a number of issues. And I have tried my hardest to run an issue-oriented campaign, explaining to the American people the differences that we have. Now, I may be old-fashioned, but that's kind of what I think democracy is supposed to be about. And frankly, as you've heard me say, Jeff, a million times, I do wish media pays more attention to why the middle class in this country is disappearing, the morality of the grotesque level of income and wealth inequality. Every now and then, maybe mention climate change, the great environmental crisis our planet faces. Every once in a while. I don't want too much out of this. But Trump is trying in a number of ways, I think, to tap into some of my support. If I lose the nomination, he will not get that support. If I lose the nomination, and we're here to do everything we can to win it, I will fight as hard as I can to make certain that Donald Trump does not become President of the United States. Uh, is Nicole here, USA Today? Uh, John Nolan, CBS, John here? John, you here? Yeah. Did you have a question? Yeah, so on the um, what have you heard back uh, in reaching out to superdelegates and asking them to look at your wins and ones that you may win over? Well, I think, there, again, there are two separate issues, and it's not just me. It is people in the states. If you live in Colorado, if you live uh, in uh, some of the other states, Minnesota, where we have won landslide victories, I think the superdelegates are hearing from the people in their own state saying, hey, you know what, how about representing the people of our state, whether it's Colorado, Minnesota, or whatever state it may be. Um, and we have got to begin the conversation uh, with many of the superdelegates who signed on with Secretary Clinton very early on. And if I think the objective evidence, and we will see, you know, we still have time to go. We've got to go through June 14th. Uh, but I think that if the evidence is the, there, that we are by far the stronger candidate, I'm confident that we will win some of those uh, folks over. Uh, Dan Roberts, Guardian, Dan here? Hey, Dan. Not into legacy, Dan. Right now, in the next uh, month and a half, we're fighting to win every delegate 
uh, that we can. I hope my legacy will be that I was a very good president of the United States. Uh, Mary Alice here? Where are you, Mary? There you are. If you do not secure the majority of pledged delegates, do you still believe that superdelegates should switch and back you in essence yeah, rejecting I, the opinion of the voters? Yeah, well, you know, it's a funny thing. We're, we're, right now, you have state after state where we have won landslide victories, and there are superdelegates who are saying, we don't have to listen to the people. We'll vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, I think at the end of the day, what superdelegates are going to have to consider, and by the way, I hope, it's a steep hill to climb, I hope that we will win the pledge delegates. But at the end of the day, the responsibility that superdelegates have is to decide what is best for this country and what is best uh, for the Democratic Party. And if those superdelegates conclude uh, that Bernie Sanders is the best candidate, the strongest candidate to defeat Trump and anybody else, yes, I would very much welcome uh, their support. Uh, Danny Freeman, NBC. Danny? Hey, Danny. in California, you're going to hold a lot of big rallies. Yes. Have there been any lessons learned from, say, states like New York where you projected you would do better that you will apply to these upcoming 10 states? Well, here's the difficulty. A, a good question, Danny. Um, and, and, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to answer that in this sense. Talk about New York State. We got, what we got, 42, 43 percent of the vote. We did 40. Three million independents in New York State were disenfranchised. They could not vote because of the crime of writing down that they were independents. I think that that's absurd. Now, I can't tell you, I cannot tell you, and I won't tell you, that if the independents, three million of them, were allowed to vote. And by the way, in most polls, in most contests, we do far, far better than Clinton does in, in the independent vote, sometimes when you get two out of three votes. I cannot tell you that if independents were allowed to vote in New York State, we would have won. I don't know. No question, though, we would have done much, much better. So we walk into, I mean, not only are we taking on, I, I don't mean to cry here, uh, you know, we know what we're getting into, we know what the rules are, we accept them, we're doing the best that we can. But please appreciate, in state after state where independents cannot vote, we are at a real disadvantage. And it's a little bit absurd because independents do vote in a general election. So if Democrats want the strongest candidate out there to take on a Republican, I think it's pretty dumb to be excluding independents, and I hope and will fight whether I win or not to change those rules. But to answer your question, you know, frankly, uh, you know, in hindsight, it is always, uh, you know, you can always think about things that you should have done better, and someday, you know, I will tell you all those things. But at the end of the day, and that's true for any campaign. I'm sure you talk to Clinton's campaign, they'll tell you all the things they could have done better. But, uh, you know, I am enormously proud of the campaign that uh, we have run up to this point, and I hope it gets better. Uh, any of you here who had, would have bet that on May 1st, uh, Bernie Sanders would have won uh, 17 primaries and caucuses, if you had the odds that I think you would have a year ago, you wouldn't be sitting here. You'd be off very wealthy individuals. Uh, so we're proud of the campaign uh, that we ran. Um, and that was Bernie Sanders speaking at the National Press Club on his campaign and his path forward towards the nomination.
many after uh, Hillary won in New York and then won four out of five of the next five primaries, many people are looking at alternatives and what is the path forward from here? Well, Bernie continues to fight and, as Indiana has shown, continues to have the ability to win. The path for him to be the nominee for the Democrats is very, very narrow. As he outlined there, there is a path there. It exists, but it is a huge uphill climb. At this point, I think it is safe to say that Bernie Sanders is very unlikely to be the nominee for the Democrats for the 2016 presidential race. Everything was stacked against him from the start. He has made a huge run at that and made a very competitive race out of one that no one expected to be competitive. Um, and we came up short. I won't even say he came up short, but it, between the campaign and the people supporting it, we didn't quite get there. And I won't, I won't say the door is closed yet. I have yet to vote. My state is among the last uh, to vote. And the people of California, the people of a number of other states have not yet had the opportunity to cast their votes. And everyone should be able to stand up for what they believe in and cast their votes for what they believe in. But the punditry, the press, the media, and even some of Bernie's supporters are looking beyond uh, Bernie's campaign, looking beyond the presidency, or looking for what's next for Bernie, what's next for us. There's, of course, many different paths that we could take going forwards. Um, and there's a, a, a quite a bit of pressure for Bernie to run as an independent, which he has from the very beginning, if you listen to Bernie Sanders at the very beginning when he began to run and when he when he started to become successful, there were a lot of questions because Bernie, you know, is a self-described democratic socialist. Bernie has been an independent for his entire elected political career. And so people asked and wondered if he would, in the event that he did not get the nomination, which at that point in time, nobody expected that he would get the nomination, nor that he would even pose a serious challenge to Hillary, whether he would run as an independent and run as a third party candidate and potentially have an impact on the presidential election in that way. And he has, from the start, said no. He would not. He would not risk running an independent campaign that would potentially cost the Democrats the White House, and in favor of a Republican of any sort winning the White House. And I think at that point in time, there no one could have imagined that Donald Trump would be that Republican nominee. So I expect Bernie Sanders to stand by that. I have no expectation that Bernie Sanders will run as an independent candidate. But there are many people that hope that he would. If he did, I would absolutely, without any doubt, 
continue to support him. So here's a story about some of those people uh, expressing their, their hopes of where Bernie will go next. This is from Counterpunch counterpunch.org by Dave Lindorf. Bernie Sanders to the consternation of critics in the Democratic Party, pundits in the corporate media, and purists on the hard left has accomplished an amazing thing. Up against Hillary Clinton, surely the biggest, best-funded, corporate-backed candidate the Democratic leadership has run since Walter Mondale lost to Ronald Reagan in 1994 over three decades, sorry, 1984 over three decades ago, the once obscure independent Vermont senator has battled Clinton to almost a draw, down by only some 319 delegates with nearly 900 to go. By doing this well, as a proudly declared, quote, democratic socialist, who on the stump has been denouncing the corruption of both the U.S. political and economic systems, and as a candidate who has refused to take corporate money or money from big, powerful donors, instead successfully funding his campaign with only small two- and three-digit donations from his supporters— Sanders has exposed not just his opponent, Hillary Clinton, but the entire Democratic Party leadership and most of its elected officials as nothing but hired corporate tools posing as progressive advocates of the people. But now Sanders faces a truly momentous choice, defeated by the combined assault of a pro-corporate mass media and by the machinations of the Democratic Party leadership. Machinations both long established with the intent of defeating upstarts and outsiders, like front-loading conservative southern states in the primary schedule, and current like scheduling only a few early candidate debates and then slotting them at times when few would be watching them. Sanders knows that barring some major surprise like a federal indictment of Clinton, a market collapse, or perhaps a leak of the transcripts of Clinton's highly paid but still secret speeches to some of the nation's biggest banks, he's not going to win the Democratic nomination. So does he, after spending months hammering home the reality that Clinton is the bought and paid candidate of the banks, the arms industry, the oil industry, and the medical industrial complex, and after enduring endless lies about his own record spouted by Clinton and her surrogates, go ahead and endorse her as a party standard bearer for the general election? Does he walk away and return quietly to Vermont? Or does he instead continue to fight for his political revolution by another route? The first and even the second option would mean the demise of his so-called political revolution. A Sanders endorsement of Clinton at this point would be a pathetic betrayal of all the energy and money that his fired-up backers have poured into this extraordinary campaign, and it would send a message that fighting against the nation's ruling elite is impossible, at least through the ballot box. It would also be pointless. Some 25-30% to 30 of Sanders backers, according to pollsters, have made it clear they will not support Clinton, no matter what, including if Sanders were to endorse her. That in itself could be enough to doom her candidacy. Furthermore, after all his well-grounded attacks on the corrupt funding of her campaign and of her horrific record as senator and secretary of state, 
any endorsement he made would be seen as a joke. He would spend the next three and a half months of the general election running from reporters asking him if he takes back the things he said about her earlier. Her crooked speech fees from Goldman Sachs and other big banks, her default advocacy of disastrous wars in Iraq, Libya, Syria, and elsewhere. Most seriously, endorsing Hillary after all that earnest, heartfelt campaigning would be a huge blow to his millions of backers and his movement. Just shutting up and going home with no endorsement for Clinton would be almost as bad, leaving his movement leaderless and thoroughly demoralized, and he'd still be besieged by journalists seeking to have him either diss or endorse Clinton. The third option Sanders has, though, is to continue his run for president, but not as a Democrat, and that option could be explosive and even revolutionary this election year, depending on how he did it. Most states have deadlines for candidates seeking to get a ballot line as an independent candidate that are earlier than the Democratic Convention in July, so running as an independent would be impossible, and a writing campaign would be even more hopeless. But there is another option, running as a presidential nominee of the Green Party, which already has ballot line on 25 states and which doesn't hold its nominating convention until August, after both the Democratic and the Republican conventions, are over. Could Sanders run as a Green? Some of his supporters are already talking about the idea. So it, so it turns out, are members of the Green Party. Apparently, even Dr. Jill Stein, a past presidential candidate of the Green Party, and its likely candidate this year, as well as Shama Sawant, the hugely popular socialist city councilwoman in Seattle who led that city's activists successfully fight to pass $15 an hour wage law, are writing a letter to Sanders inviting him, urging him, to enter into discussions with the Green Party about running as its presidential candidate. Stein is apparently even willing to step aside and perhaps run as his vice presidential running mate if he were to do so. Will Sanders seize this opportunity to continue the fight? If he is serious about inspiring a political revolution, he must. He has said he does not want to be a spoiler, quote, like Ralph Nader, and help elect Donald Trump or some other Republican. But would that be the result of a three-way race with Sanders running as a Green? Not necessarily. In the first place, the claim that votes for Nader led to George Bush's 2000 victory over Al Gore is bogus. Gore lost because he embarrassingly failed to win his own state of Tennessee. As well, it is clear that it was a corrupt Republican Supreme Court that by a 5-4 vote halted the count in Florida that handed that state's electoral votes to Bush. It has been shown that a continued counting and challenges to the improperly rejected ballots would clearly have given Florida to Gore. More importantly, 2016 is not the year 2000. The public this year is clearly sick of the two major parties and disgusted by the undemocratic nature of the primaries. Incredibly, both Trump and Clinton, the likely winners of those primaries, represent the two most unpopular and disliked candidates in memory, with some 65% of Americans saying they dislike Trump and another 56% saying they dislike Clinton. Indeed, Clinton, not favored by almost half 
of Democrats is so disliked outside the Democratic Party that there is a strong likelihood and fear even among Democratic leaders that she could lose to Trump or another Republican nominee all by herself with or without a Sanders endorsement. Meanwhile, the most liked candidate this year continues to be Sanders, whose negative rating is just 36%, probably all of them Republicans, and who continues to pull better against all possible Republican candidates than does Clinton. With numbers like that, Sanders, if he continued to build his movement and continued to bring in new voters as he has demonstrably done in the primaries, could even contemplate winning such a general election race. He has also demonstrated his ability to attract tens of millions of dollars a month in online contributions. Running in a three-way race, he'd surely collect even more money, making him fully competitive with the two widely loathed big party candidates. Sanders and his ardent supporters have a unique historic opportunity to shatter the asphyxiating two-party duopoly of two pro-corporate parties that has been the Bermuda Triangle of progressive politics for over a century. Will he give up on the self-defeating nonsensical notion of backing Hillary Clinton if she wins the Democratic Party's nomination for president? If he does, despite being clearly the most progressive candidate to make a serious run for the presidency since Eugene Debs in 1920, Sanders will be at best consigned to a brief dismissive footnote in future histories of the United States. If he runs in the general election as a Green, he has a chance to write a whole new chapter in those history books. And this piece goes on a little bit longer. If you want to read the rest, uh, it was by Dave Lindorf in counterpunch.org. And I think he lays out a pretty, pretty good case. It would be absolutely revolutionary for Bernie Sanders to abandon the Democratic Party and to run as a Green. I think it would continue the momentum of the political revolution. I think it would give a huge boost to the Green Party and build their access, their ballot access even further beyond the 25 states where it exists now. I think it would be a fantastic idea. I also realistically don't believe it's going to happen, but would love to see it work out. So next up is Sean King from NewYorkDailyNews.com. The phrase Bernie or bust is being used a lot nowadays to describe fans of Bernie Sanders who say they're unlikely or unwilling to support anyone else, namely Hillary Clinton, if he doesn't receive the nomination. The phrase itself is derogatory, somewhat condescending, and does a poor job at explaining why voters who love Bernie Sanders are grossly uninterested in any other mainstream candidates from either of the two parties. Last night, Bernie Sanders won Rhode Island, his 18th victory so far. So clearly you can see this is from a little bit over a week ago, or just about a week ago. Interestingly, of the four contests yesterday in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, only the last was an open primary state which allowed independents and even former Republicans to cross over and support a Democratic candidate. Consequently, Sanders won. 
He performs well in open primaries and caucuses because party affiliation isn't required in either. This is also why Bernie Sanders lost every single age group in Maryland last night, except for voters under 30. Nearly 70% of them chose Sanders. No, not because they think he will, quote, give them free stuff, but because they trust him and have little to no trust or history with the Democratic Party itself. I'm 36, but I'm in that boat as well. I simply don't trust the Democratic Party. My values don't really line up with their values. While I've grown to be a huge Bernie Sanders fan, I didn't just vote for Sanders because I think he's cool. I voted for him because the Democratic Party is terribly uncool. What has grown to really matter to me does not truly matter to Hillary Clinton or the Democratic Party establishment. Simply put, I can't imagine ever voting against my conscience. I'm against the death penalty. I'm against super PACs and the unfair influence of billionaires on elections. I'm for a $15 minimum wage. I'm for free college tuition. I'm for closing every tax loophole for the rich and corporations. I'm for avoiding war at all possible costs. I'm against private prisons. I'm for universal health care. I'm for a complete overhaul of the criminal justice system. Those are the ideas that I value with or without Bernie Sanders. It just so happens that he is passionately for those same stances. And by and large, Hillary Clinton isn't. She supports the death penalty. She is deeply funded by super PACs. She has been wishy-washy on the fight for a $15 minimum wage. She has made millions of dollars speaking to the big banks and super rich. She voted for the Iraq war. She received money from private prison lobbyists. All of that troubles my soul. I don't hate her or anyone for that matter. I want to see an amazing woman become president of the United States. But if doing so requires me to go against many of my own core beliefs, I'm just not sure I can or will do it. As crazy as it may sound to many of you, I'm still holding out a very real hope that Bernie Sanders can win this nomination. I've done the math. It being a long shot doesn't bother me. This campaign has always had to overcome long odds. Fifteen states, including many, where he will perform well, and over a thousand delegates remain. All I know is that I'm going to hold on to what I believe in most and let those beliefs guide me all the way to November. And finally, from Vox.com, by Jeff Stein. Baltimore already tried having a political revolution. About a year ago, tens of thousands of poor people, most of them black, stormed the streets of the city for weeks to protest the death of 25-year-old Freddie Gray, who died while in custody in a police transport van. Joseph Kane, a 30-year-old community organizer, reflected on the heady atmosphere during the protests and at an after-party for Bernie Sanders supporters in Baltimore on Tuesday night. Quote, After the riots, you had a moment to get into Baltimore, and help them understand what the political revolution is about. About how we have to radically change how money works in this country. 
the kind of thing Bernie has been talking about. But today, Kane said he thinks the city's problems look as far as ever from being solved. The one-year anniversary of Gray's death has been marked by stories about quote, how, quote, nothing has changed in Baltimore. This may sound like a local story, but it's not. Bernie Sanders is losing the Democratic primary in large part because his political revolution has failed to take off in cities like Baltimore. Sanders recently lamented the fact that poor people haven't turned out in the primary, an unwitting acknowledgement of the shortcomings of his campaign. It happened again on Tuesday night. Hillary Clinton took the city by a 61 to 38 margin. Bernie himself seemed at a loss for an answer to, as to why. In Baltimore, though, some of Sanders' young fans have an explanation. It's going to take much, much more than a late campaign push and a little-known Vermont senator to awaken those who have given up on politics altogether. And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. And you can find out more on my website, bernie 2016com As we go out tonight, we will hear Vote Bernie, Be Happy by Tony Valley, V-A-L-L-E, which you can find on YouTube. Thanks for listening. song I wrote. I hope it inspires you to vote for Bernie. Be happy. In this country we have some trouble. If you don't vote, you make it double. Vote Bernie. Be happy. Vote Bernie. Be happy now. Vote Bernie <laughs> Be happy Look at me, I'm happy Vote Bernie Be happy Come on, let's make America happy again Forget being great, we want to be happy 
learning. Be happy. Don't burn it. Be happy. Work longer hours for shorter pay. They keep sending our jobs away. Don't burn it. Be happy. The government says your weed is wrong. Uncle Bernie says smoke a bomb. Fort Bernie. Be happy. Fort Bernie. Be happy now.